You're listening to the Tree of Life podcast, where we desire to be a bridge between the two covenantal peoples, physical Israel and spiritual Israel, by inspiring the non-Jewish part of Messiah's body to reconnect with its Jewish roots through biblical teaching and worshipful demonstrations, and to work towards greater understanding and reconciliation between Messiah's body and traditional Judaism. And now, here's Rabbi Joel Lieberman. Open up your word this morning to where we left off last Shabbat, Luke chapter 23. I'm going to talk to you for a little bit this morning about the ultimate promise while paying the ultimate price. My friends, followers of Yeshua are the only people who can laugh about death and dying. Because for us, death is no longer scary. It is said of the Proverbs 31 woman, quote, she laughs at the days to come reason death is no longer scary for us is because the Messiah, Yeshua, conquered death and the grave. But Yeshua wasn't the only person that was crucified that day. As we pick it up where we left off last Shabbat, there were two other men. Luke actually calls them evildoers, which could mean robbers or bandits. We don't know their names, but we get to hear the fascinating conversation that took place. Luke 23, let's begin in verse 39. One of the evildoers hanging there was jeering at him, saying, Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other one, rebuking him, replied, Don't you fear God, since you are under the same sentence? We are getting what we deserve for our actions, and rightly so, but this one has done nothing wrong. And he said, Yeshua, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Yeshua said to him, Amen. I tell you, today you shall be with me in paradise. Conversation with criminals. These three execution stakes at Golgotha can teach us many lessons, I believe. For instance, one of the execution stakes next to Yeshua could be called the stake of rejection. The execution stake on the other side of Yeshua could be called the stake of repentance. And the center execution stake represents the stake of redemption. These three execution stakes illustrate Romans 6.23. The stake to the right says, for sin's payment is death. The stake to the left says, but God's gracious gift is eternal life. And the stake in the center says, In Messiah Yeshua, our Lord. Let's examine a few points of personal application from these final words of Yeshua from the tree of sacrifice. Point number one, good deeds won't get you into paradise. And bad deeds can't keep us out. One of the criminals next to Yeshua, Yeshua made this observation that we just read, don't you fear God, we're getting what we deserve for our actions. The question portion means, don't you fear Adonai's punishment of sin in the afterlife? And the statement portion contains the Pharisaic theology about human justice, measure for measure. If you do the crime, you got to do the time. But let's never confuse, my friends, human justice with the grace of God. 
You see, many people imagine there are scales in heaven, right? They think every good deed they perform is placed on one side of the scale. Every sin they commit is placed on the other side. And then they believe after they die that Adonai is going to weigh their deeds. If the good deeds outweigh the bad, the sins, they get into heaven. But if the sins outweigh the good deeds, then they go to that other place that they don't even like to mention. But what's wrong with that picture? What's wrong with that picture? Maybe somebody can go outside and tell them to do some weed whacking in about an hour. It denies the grace of God. Let's consider the criminal on the execution stake that I've called the stake of repentance beside the Messiah once again. He was guilty, right? The preponderance of evidence was against this guy. But just before he died, this criminal was saved from eternal separation from God in the same way that you and I are saved. By grace, right? Through emunah, through trusting, through faith, not by works. Now, you may think you've done a lot of bad stuff in your life that won't allow you into God's paradise, but God's grace is greater than all of our sin. As the song goes, his grace is enough. Point number two, the only way to make a reservation in paradise is through Yeshua the Messiah. Salvation is by what? Chesed, it's by grace. That's God's part. Our part is to exercise emunah, trust, faith. Do you notice this criminal's prayer of faith here using just nine simple words? We like to complicate stuff. He prayed, Yeshua, what? Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Perhaps he hoped somehow that Adonai might intervene and miraculously rescue the Messiah from the execution stake, and then bring in the Messianic kingdom. And at the same time, this criminal gives us a very simple ABC pattern, if you will, for making a reservation in paradise. We must A, admit that we are sinners. The criminal admitted he was guilty, yes, that he deserved to die for his crimes. We must believe, B, thank you, April, for, that Yeshua can save us. Matthew's account tells us at first both criminals were insulting Yeshua. But something happened that caused this one man to trust in him. I believe that when he saw Yeshua was dying and heard what he was saying, he changed his mind about Yeshua. He made Teshuva. The criminal came to the place where he said, this one has done nothing wrong. Have you come to the place in your life where you believe that Yeshua is the perfect son of God. He's done nothing wrong. And finally, see, we must confess Yeshua as our Lord. This man not only made a profession of faith, he prayed a prayer of faith, didn't he? He said, Yeshua, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Let's examine that statement for a moment. First, the criminal had to believe that Yeshua had a future in which he could remember him, right? Next, he believed Yeshua would have to have a kingdom. Remember, at that moment, the criminal, think about it. He's praying this prayer. How many of you know Yeshua did not look at, at that point like a king? He'd been beaten, as we looked at two weeks ago and last week. He'd been battered. He'd been bloodied. And by human standards, there was no basis to believe that Yeshua was even going to survive the tree of sacrifice, much less head up a kingdom. My friends, in order to make a reservation in paradise... We must make the same confession. The scriptures say, quote, 
For if you confess with your mouth that Yeshua is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Have you done that? But you also have to let Adonai know that you're serious. How many of you know he requires your life? The thief on the execution stick was placing his entire life and future in the nail-pierced wrists and ankles of Yeshua. And number three, the promise of Yeshua confirms our reservation in paradise. The master assured the convict of a different type of rescue here by answering him this. Amen, I tell you, today you shall be with me in paradise. In keeping with Pharisaic Jewish thought, Yeshua anticipated that at the moment of death, the soul of man leaves his body and departs to one of two possible destinations of reward or punishment. According to the Pebble Sheen, the Pharisees, the souls of the righteous wait in paradise for the resurrection of the dead, at which point they will be returned back to their bodies. What or where is paradise? Simply stated, paradise is heaven. The word actually means beautiful garden, and it's found only three times in the Brit Chadashah, in the New Covenant Scriptures. Yeshua used it here, and he uses it again in Revelation 2.7. Quote, to the one who overcomes, I will grant the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And then in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 2 through 4, Shaul uses the word paradise when he writes, quote, I know a man in Messiah, 14 years ago he was caught up to the third heaven. He was caught up into paradise. Yeshua promised the criminal what? Today you shall be with me in paradise. Yeshua wasn't talking about some future event. He was talking about today. You see, after a follower of Yeshua dies, there's no waiting period. There's no purgatory. It's not in the word of God. There's no waiting period. We get to be with Yeshua immediately. This is confirmed with Paul's words to the Kihilot, the congregations in Corinth and Philippi as well. My friends, have you ever thought about the fact that these two thieves died the same distance from Yeshua? But one died trusting while the other died rejecting Yeshua, right? That should serve as a warning to all of us that one can be close to Yeshua and still die without trusting him. How can two people be in the same room, hear the same good news, one comes running to Yeshua while the other person just walks away unchanged? It's a mystery to me how anyone can see the tree of sacrifice and not give their heart, not give their life to Yeshua. But we know that the same sun that melts ice will harden clay. Let's read on in the text. Verse 44. It was, now, it was now about the sixth hour and darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour for the sun died out. The gospel record tells us Yeshua hung on the tree of sacrifice for six hours. He was crucified at 9 in the morning, the third hour from 6 a.m. sunrise. And he died at three, around 3 p.m., the common time for the communal offering by the Kohanim in the temple. How much more so on this holy day of Pesach, 
as the Levites were preparing the animal sacrifices of the national Passover lamb. At the sixth hour, high noon, suddenly there was, listen to this, complete and sudden darkness. The text actually says it like this. Darkness, what? Fell. One moment the sun was shining, right? The next moment it was dark. As if someone had flipped the light switch. The light switch of the sun. But think about it. The moon cannot eclipse the sun at Passover time. It wasn't a lunar eclipse. This can happen only during a new moon. Passover falls at the full moon. The darkness that fell over the land of Israel that day had a supernatural quality to it, similar to the terror and the darkness that fell on Abraham or the plague of darkness that fell over Egypt. Why did this happen? This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled. Quote, it will come about in that day, declares the Lord God, that I will make the sun go down at noon and make the earth dark in broad daylight. Amos 8 verse 9. And the curtain of the temple, verse 45, was torn in two. Not only did the sun go dark and fell, darkness fell, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record that at that precise moment, the parochet, the veil in the temple was torn. The temple had more than one veil, by the way. One outer veil at the entrance to the holy place, and then there were two inner parallel curtains at the entrance to Kodesh Kodeshim, the Holy of Holies. The book of Hebrews connects the death of the Messiah with passage through the inner veil. And so I think that the inner veil that was hung in front of the Holy of Holies tore from top to bottom and only the priesthood was aware of it. The gospel narratives do not state that the centurion and those around Yeshua that day at the execution stake saw the veil tear at that moment that Yeshua died. And the geography, by the way, makes it impossible that they could have had a view of the temple from their station at Golgotha outside the city walls, if you believe it's outside. And we talked that about two weeks ago, that location, the garden tomb, Golgotha location. Now, it's interesting that the curtain described... It's described in Torah in Exodus chapter 26 and other Jewish literature as well. Josephus writes that it was 20 cubits. It was 30 feet wide. It was 60 feet long and woven as thick as a man's hand. It's a pretty thick veil, isn't it? Consisting of a pattern of 72 squares. It hung between the holy place and the most holy place, the holy of holies. And so to get some idea, really, of the magnificence of the curtain, Josephus describes one of the inner temple veils like this. He said this, quote, Before these doors, there was a veil of equal largeness with the doors. It was embroidered with blue and fine linen and scarlet and purple, and of a contexture that was truly wonderful. This mixture of colors had its mystical interpretation, but it was a, a kind of image of the universe. For by the scarlet there seemed to be signified fire, by the fine flax the earth, by the blue the air, and by the purple the sea. This curtain had also embroidered upon it all that was mystical in the heavens. That's from his Wars, volume 5, 5 colon 4 paragraph. So even to this day... Much of the ancient temple format is present within the synagogue. The bima is usually placed where the ark is situated on the east side of the building. To remind us of the messianic hope, the city of Jerusalem. The modern ark 
contains one or more Torah scrolls in it. Between the doors of the ark and the scrolls within ours as well is a curtain reminiscent of the massive parochet in the temple. And so as Yeshua hung on the tree of sacrifice that afternoon, this thick curtain, it was thick, was suddenly ripped apart. But it wasn't just partially torn, was it? The word is schizo, for which we get the word schism, meaning the curtain was ripped completely into two parts. In other words, no one standing on the ground ripped it. Only a hand from above could rip it from top to bottom. The rending of that curtain, my friends, has tremendous spiritual implications for us, I believe. Because the curtain was torn, there are several important truths that we embrace today. And I know this is a little controversial, especially in Messianic Jewish circles. But number one, no more barriers. Adonai instructed our Jewish people to construct this curtain for the Mishkan, for the tabernacle, later for the temple, for a very simple reason. His glory was so overwhelming that if anybody approached him, they would what? They would die. Once Adonai invited Moses to see his kavod, his glory, you remember it was so powerful that Moses couldn't even look directly. He'd only glimpse the afterglow, right, of his glory. But even that was powerful enough as Moses comes down the mountain looking like his face, he didn't put like 30 block on his face, man. It was sunburned. The temple was a series of barriers. It was a series of walls. If you weren't a Jew, you could only go into the court of the Gentiles. If you were a Jewish woman, you had to stop before you came to the court of the men. If you weren't a priest, you couldn't enter the court of the priests. Only a few priests were then allowed to even enter the holy place, which was the room outside of the Holy of Holies. And on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the Kohen Gadol, the high priest, would lift the corner of this massive set of parallel curtains and slip into the Holy of Holies, by the way, with a lot of fear and trembling. And once inside, he would take the blood of a lamb and sprinkle it on the seat of the Ark of the Covenant. He was there as a representative of our Jewish people to seek forgiveness on, beh- on their behalf. But when Yeshua died on the tree of sacrifice, the rending of the temple's inner veil of parallel curtains was torn. Adonai was in essence saying, there will no longer be any more barriers between you and me. Now you and I can approach God. Freely, no more sacrifices. The priests had slain thousands of bulls and lambs in the temple area. The temple was built on Mount Moriah, where centuries before we know Abraham had prepared to kill his only son, Yitzchak, Isaac. And God provided a ram as the substitute. And on that very mountain, a virtual, think about it, a virtual river of blood had flown down the slopes To seek forgiveness of sins all of these years. Yeshua died as the Lamb of God. There's no need anymore for animal sacrifice. Now we may see some in the millennial temple. Not for sin, but in remembrance of what Yeshua did. But aren't you glad that you didn't have to walk in the tree of light this morning. And bring a goat or bring a lamb to be killed here. The Lamb of God has already made the perfect sacrifice for our sins. The writer of Hebrews puts it this way, quote, The Torah had a shadow of the good things to come, not the form itself 
of the realities. For this reason, it can never, by means of the same sacrifices they offer consistently year after year, make perfect those who draw near. But in these sacrifices is a reminder of sins year after year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. By his will, we have been made holy through the offering of the body of Messiah Yeshua once for all. The curtain was torn in two. Shows us we no longer need a temple in which to make sacrifices. Why? Because Yeshua made the final sacrifice for us when he died on the tree of sacrifice. That's not negating a third temple. But no more sacrifice for sins is needed because of Messiah's sacrifice. And finally, number three, no more mediators. As I mentioned, the average Jewish person could not just stroll into the Holy of Holies. They needed a priest to go for them. But when the parochet was torn, that veil, God was telling us we don't need anyone as a mediator between us except for the Lord Yeshua. The curtain was torn open so we could approach Adonai on our own. We, you don't need to confess your sins to anyone, my friends, except Yeshua. He is our Kohen Gadol. He is our high priest. And through him we have access to the creator of the universe. Paul writes this, quote, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, a human, Messiah Yeshua. The writer of Hebrews likewise records this, quote, Therefore, let us draw near to the throne of grace with boldness. And Yeshua, verse 46, Crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I entrust my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last, enduring hell as Yeshua breathed his last. This cry to the Father must have come from the incomprehensible depths of his spirit as his suffering was unique among men. For the first time in eternity, the Son would be separated from the Heavenly Father as He took upon Himself the sins of humanity. In those moments, He endured hell for me and for you. There are at least several ways that He did this on the tree of sacrifice. He experienced torment beyond belief. Hell is a place of torment, isn't it? Not many preachers and teachers talk about hell anymore. Many people have decided hell is simply just a figurative place and can't be taken literally. The Bible uses and it used painful words to describe the horrors of hell. It is called in the scriptures a lake of fire burning with brimstone, sulfur. Early in our study in chapter 16, Yeshua told about a rich man who died, right? Woke up in Hades, Hades and said, I am tormented in this flame. I take the scriptures literally, except where there is obvious symbolism used, and then I look for the literal truth behind the symbol. I believe hell is a literal place of literal fire, but if fire is the symbol, then the literal truth behind it is that it is a place of torment. On the tree of sacrifice, Yeshua experienced excruciating torment. 
In the last two messages, we've examined the physical pain of the scourging and the act of crucifixion. But the worst torment Yeshua experienced was that his soul was soiled with the filth and the foulness of sin. Imagine an innocent, pure soul being contaminated with the horrible garbage of the world's wickedness. It's almost too much to even understand and comprehend. Hell is not only a place of torment, it's a place of separation from Adonai. You see, the worst thing about hell, believe it or not, is not the fire. Its horror gets aggravated because it's a place where people are alienated from the loving presence of God. As Yeshua was hanging on the tree, he experienced that separation, that alienation from his father. He cries out in Mark's gospel, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? This is a, such a mystery, we can't totally comprehend it. It's beyond the capacity of our tiny minds to grasp. But this much we do know and we can know. From the beginning of the beginning, Adonai the Father and God the Son had been perfectly united. Yeshua said, I and the Father are one. But for those three hours on the tree of sacrifice, Yeshua... He experienced a temporary break, if you will, in that perfect oneness. Yeshua is eternal. He is God in the flesh with no beginning and no end. He experienced for us in a temporary short window of time, three hours, that we being finite creatures would otherwise have experienced for all time, eternity. That's extreme love. Not only is it a place of torment, not only is it a place of separation from Adonai, hell is a place of darkness. Many people laugh and make jokes about hell. They don't really believe in hell. But if hell exists, it's just going to be one wild party. Right? They think there'll be plenty of great music there. Plenty of other people to party with. But Yeshua said that hell is a place of extreme darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. The Torah tells us, Exodus 10, 21, that Adonai sent darkness over the entire land of Egypt for three whole days. It was such an extreme darkness that it could be felt, the Bible said. That dark. The rabbis taught for years that the darkening of the sun would signal Adonai's judgment against sin. This darkness is a divine object lesson about how much God abhors sin. God's judgment fell against sin at the tree of sacrifice. And Yeshua was innocent. Yeshua breathed his last. The word for the last breath literally means the spirit going out. Our word expired carries the same idea of our spirit going out. But Yeshua was in full control when he died. He gave up his spirit to the Father. It was as if Yeshua spent his entire life waiting to exhale. And when he had finished the work of redemption, he exhaled. What's the reaction to all this? Look at verse 47. Now, when the centurion saw what had happened, he began glorifying God, saying, truly, this was a righteous man. The Roman centurion on duty that day was an eyewitness to the death of Yeshua. He comes to the conviction, whew, something divine has just gone down here. 
Not only something divine has transpired, something divine just expired here. I love what Max Lucado wrote. What must have been going through the mind of the centurion that day? He writes this, quote, The condemned looked like anything but a king. His face was lumpy and bruised. His back arched slightly and his eyes faced downward. Some harmless hick, mused the centurion. What could he have done? His eyes were strangely calm as they stared from behind the bloody mask. For just a moment, he looked at the centurion. For a second, the Roman looked into the purest eyes he'd ever seen. And as he watched the soldier grab the Nazarene and yank him to the ground, something told him this was not going to be a normal day. As the hours wore on, he didn't know what to do with the Nazarene's silence. He didn't know what to do with his kindness. But most of all, he was perplexed by the darkness. One minute, the sun. The next was darkness. One minute, the heat. The next minute, a chilly breeze. For a long while, the centurion sat on a rock and stared at the three silhouetted figures. Their heads were limp, occasionally rolling from side to side. The centurion looked up into the face of this one near death. His head was heavy with pain. He could scarcely move it, but his eyes, they were unquenchable. They were the eyes of God. He turned and watched as the eyes of Yeshua lifted and looked toward home. He listened as the parched lips parted and the swollen tongue spoke for the last time. Father, into your hands I entrust my spirit. Had the centurion not said it, the rocks would have, as would have the angels, the stars, even the demons. But he did say it. It fell to a nameless foreigner to state what all that they all knew. Surely this man was the son of God. And all the crowds, verse 48, assembled for this spectacle. When they saw what had happened, began to turn back, beating their breasts. Again, check another prophetic fulfillment from Zechariah chapter 12, 10. They will look upon me whom they have pierced. They will mourn for him as one who mourns for an only son. And they will weep bitterly for him, over him, like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. All these prophecies being checked off. Verse 49. But all Yeshua's acquaintances and the women who were following him from the Galilee were standing at a distance watching these things. And I think it's really significant, my friends, that Luke mentions the women here. You see, it would have been very difficult to, for a woman to get close to this place of execution. But evidently, this group of women felt compelled to stay close to their Messiah. They were most certainly part of Yeshua's Jewish Talmudim. We're told that they had followed Yeshua from the Galilee, helping him. And in all the other gospel accounts, these Galilean, five Galilean women had really become the most prominent personalities among the community of early followers of Yeshua. By the way, four of these five were named Miriam. <laughs> it was the most popular female name among first century Jews in the land of Israel. In any event, they did not know here how to proceed. They didn't dare ask for the body and nor were they willing here to leave Yeshua alone on the execution stake. Why? Because Jewish burial custom dictates that a corpse is not left unattended until its burial is complete. Look down at verse 54. It was the day of preparation and Shabbat was approaching. 
And so the timing here of Yeshua's burial becomes a real pressing issue. Jewish scripture dictated that any dead body, even of a, of a criminal, would, couldn't be left in the open overnight, Deuteronomy 21, 22. And this particular preparation day was also the first day of Passover, an especially important Shabbat to follow, which was the first day of unleavened bread. The Gospels put the death again of Yeshua at a little after 3 p.m. The festival begins approximately at 6 p.m. And so there's a concerted effort here to take the bodies down from the execution stake before the festival, get them out of sight in a short period of time. The death had to then be confirmed to Pontius Pilate as there needed to be an official Roman ending for this scenario. And so this would take some time, my friends, to fill out all whatever paperwork to get the death of Yeshua confirmed legally in this way, officially. Now go back to verse 50. Now there was a man named Joseph, a, a council member, a good and righteous man. He had been not in agreement with the council and their action. He was from the Judean town of Arimathea, and he was waiting for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for Yeshua's body. And he took it down, wrapped it in a linen cloth, and laid him in a tomb cut out of the rock where no one else had ever yet been laid. Verse 55, the women who had come with him from the Galilee followed, and they saw the tomb and how his body was laid. And then they returned and prepared spices and perfumes, but on Shabbat they rested according to the commandment. And so, interesting passage here. Common sense tells us that Joseph, being a prominent member of the Sanhedrin, he would have had closer access, actually, to the governor than Yeshua's disciples. Roman law normally handed over the bodies of executed criminals to the next of kin, but not if they had been executed for sedition. So why then did Pilate hand over the body of Yeshua to Yosef? who was not related to Yeshua, and Yeshua, when Yeshua had actually, in fact, been executed for sedition. Perhaps because Pilate was convinced, as we looked at, that Yeshua was not really guilty of the crime against him alleged, as we've spoken about. Yosef of Ramatayim, or Arimathea, gathered up courage to step forward for Yeshua. The Bible says here he was a good and he was a righteous man. He was Rich, he didn't vote for Yeshua's death when the Sanhedrin voted, and that he was a Talmud, he was a disciple. Matthew 27, 57 says he was a disciple, but he was a secret Talmud, fearing his fellow Sanhedrin members. But after Yeshua's death, <laughs> he no longer remained in secret. According to this passage, Yosef took the body of Yeshua off the execution stake, no doubt he had to have some help doing that by the attending soldiers, for sure. He had to remove those nine-inch railroad spikes, nails. He wrapped them in a linen sheet. Somehow, I don't know how, somehow moved Yeshua the short distance to the nearby tomb. He probably purchased that earlier that morning in anticipation of Yeshua's burial. Carefully laid him on one of the burial benches there, perhaps agreeing to come back later and to deposit Yeshua into one of the niches after performing additional rites, you can, it's a fascinating study of the tomb and how the different placements in there of various bodies. Both Miriam of Magdala and Miriam, the mother of Yaakov, James, wanted to anoint Yeshua's body with spices and perfumes in keeping with Jewish burial custom. But the imminent onset, again, they only have three hours to do this. 
of Pesach prevents them from doing that, so they prepared what they could before the holy day begins. And then Yosef closes the tomb's entrance with a huge rolling stone, Matthew 27, 60. Quick note here, by the way, by caring for the body of Yeshua, maybe I hadn't thought about this, but Yosef then renders himself by doing that ceremonially unclean, Levitically unclean and disqualified from eating the Passover that evening. Isn't that interesting? He could have sent his servants to take care of the burial of Yeshua and not forfeit his right to eat in the Passover Seder. But the secret disciple of the master now shows his love and devotion to the master by personally attending to his body. No doubt Yosef celebrated Passover a month later as Torah construction allows in this exact situation. Numbers 9, verses 10 and 11. April, if you come up. My friends, the thing that turned Joseph from being a secret disciple into a bold Talmud seems to be the phenomenal events surrounding the tree of sacrifice. When Yosef witnessed all of this, his mind connected the claims of Yeshua with the Tanakh prophecies of the Messiah, which I've only given you two here today. My friends, we can see an application here. For every secret disciple needs to study Slevat Yeshua, the crucifixion of Yeshua. Really seeing and really understanding the tree of sacrifice, in my opinion, will turn any secret disciple into a bold witness for Yeshua. Only true affection for Yeshua will make us bold. And only as we see and understand Slivat Yeshua will affection for Yeshua be awakened in our lives. We tend to think about Slivat Yeshua almost in terms of a, of a physical act of Yeshua giving his life up in such a public, humiliating, and horribly painful manner. But the execution stake, think about this, the execution stake at Golgotha, my friend, was simply a culmination, a final enactment of crucifixion that began from the very time that Yeshua began his public ministry. He was, in a sense, crucified many, many times by his enemies, by the crowds, and even by some disciples. I think it's a mistake to separate the execution stake from the suffering and the rejection and the other pain that Yeshua experienced during his earthly life as he presented the light in the midst of darkness, all the while darkness is attempting to extinguish that light. Does it minimize the importance? Does it minimize the centrality of the physical crucifixion as we've seen? But this is just to say that what occurred at Golgotha began with his birth. There were those attempting to snuff out the light that he came to bring into the world. And so, my friends, the stage is now set for the greatest revelation of Adonai's power as Yeshua conquers mankind's greatest enemy, death itself. We're going to look at that over the next three Shabbats. As we close and move into our final segment today, I once read a sermon illustration on this passage. It retells the story that when Andrew Jackson was president of these United States, there was a sensational crime committed 
where robbers hijacked a federal payroll train. One of the robbers, George Wilson, shot and killed a guard. And after being arrested and tried, Wilson was sentenced to die by hanging. There was a growing public sentiment at that time against capital punishment. And because there were even some questionable details about the crime, President Jackson issued a full pardon to George Wilson. Unbelievably, Wilson refused to accept the pardon. Officials said that he had no choice. Since the president issued a pardon, he must accept it. He still refused. And so the case went all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court. In 1829, Chief Justice John Marshall made this ruling, quote, A pardon is a parchment whose only value must be determined by the recipient of the pardon. It has no value apart from that which the receiver gives it. George Wilson has refused to accept the pardon. We cannot conceive why he would do so, but he has. Therefore, George Wilson must die. Wilson was executed by hanging not long after that. Now you might think, man, Wilson was a fool for refusing the pardon. But he's no more foolish than the thousands, dare I say millions of people around us who have refused the offer of pardon by Yeshua, the Messiah. Today, someone which much, with much more authority than our U.S. president is making you an offer that is hard to refuse. He says you're guilty and you deserve to die, but I'm offering you a full and free pardon for your sins. Will you accept Yeshua if you've not already done so? He is our pardon. My friends, the way I painted that picture today of, of the ending of the crucifixion is to make us turn from being secret Talmudim to bold Talmudim with chutzpah. And with me, if you would, let me bless you with God's blessing as we disperse and meet back out in the foyer for the Kiddush. As Moses told Aaron how to bless the sons and daughters of Israel with these words, he said this. Yivarechecha Adonai v'yishmarecha Ya'er Adonai panav elecha v'chunecha Yisha Adonai panav elecha v'yasem lecha May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May Adonai lift up his countenance over you and grant you and grant all of us your shalom. Lord, we need that in these days. The Prince of Peace that passes all understanding. Lord God, this, he brings peace. He's brought peace to our hearts and our lives. Through all this Mishigas that we see in the world, we would be those straight arrows of truth, Lord, because we've spent much time with you. Meshem Yeshua. Amen. Shabbat Shalom, everybody. Thanks for joining us this week. 
make sure to visit our website, treeoflifeca.org, and be sure to subscribe to the show in iTunes, Google, Spotify, or via RSS, so you'll never miss a show. While you're at it, if you've found value in this show, we'd appreciate a ratings on iTunes, or simply tell a friend about the show. That would help us out too. If you like this show, you might want to check out our Facebook page, Tree of Life Messianic Jewish Congregation, to see more content, including our weekly live stream. Be sure to tune in for our next episode as we continue to explore our Jewish roots through Scripture. <laughs>